Well, we're, uh, we're on final approach here to conclude our book of Proverbs study. Uh, we're 54, 55 messages into this now since we started, so uh, uh, we're, we're getting close. Uh, we'll, Lord willing, finish off chapter 30, which leaves one more chapter, uh, the words of King Lemuel, and uh, so we'll, we'll be concluding our study here in the next few weeks. Uh, before we do that, uh, we're going to turn back to Proverbs chapter 30 and pick up where we left off a couple of weeks ago. I appreciate Jack's ministry uh, last week as we were away uh, celebrating uh, a couple of birthday parties down in Austin and our family and uh, some other things going on. So um, these are, uh, by way of review, these are the words of Agur. Or if we were uh, native Hebrew speakers, we would probably pronounce that Agur. Is that right? That sound good? Yeah. Okay. All right. And uh, I gotta go. Gotta lean on the uh, the seminarians in the room here. So, um, however we say this guy's name, uh, it's interesting because as we get, as we get to the end of Proverbs, uh, we know that Proverbs, the content of Proverbs, comes mostly from a man named Solomon, who the Bible tells us was the wisest man that ever lived. Right. So you, you think God says this is the wisest man that ever lived? We probably should listen to him, huh? You say, is that right, Noah? Probably should listen to him. Okay. And um, and so Solomon wrote a lot of this with his own hand, and then there were others, uh, what are called the mighty men of Solomon, who gathered some of his uh, sayings that were just um, you know audible sayings, and uh, they collected them, wrote them down, and added those to the book of Proverbs. And then just in God's God's hand of providence in bringing this book together, there are a couple other contributors. Uh, Agur is one of them, as we're going to look at today, and then King Lemuel in chapter 31 is another uh, contributor here. So what do we know about this guy? It's been a couple of weeks, so just by way of review, we have no idea who Agur is other than uh, it's possible, looking at the first couple of verses there of chapter 30, verses, uh, verse 1, that uh, because he's speaking to uh, Ithiel and Ukol, um, that uh, perhaps those are his sons and kind of following the father-son um, pattern that we've seen in this book with Solomon and his sons, uh, maybe that's the situation. Uh, one of you very wisely noted out that we do know something about Agur, and that is he is the son of Jaquette, right? That was, I think that was Brian, our Bible scholar resident back there. Uh, Mr. Muirhead uh, mentioned that. So we do know that much, but beyond that, we don't know. And it's interesting, um, you know, why, why does God use unknown people to contribute to his inspired word? I, I think it's interesting that this unknown man who declares his stupidity right out of the gate. I mean, that, how do we know Agur? He says, I'm the stupidest guy alive. And we're like, well, why are you writing to us then? And the answer is that a wise God can use even the weakest and most humble and most unlearned among us. And we know that because when Jesus was alive, uh, he didn't go to the universities. He didn't go to the kingdoms and the palaces and, you know, collecting of the, the wise men of the king. But he went down to the docks to find his disciples. And then he went over to the tax collector booth to find another one. And he found the outcasts and he found the strugglers. And, and that's our God. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament says, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm the least of the apostles. And so maybe there is something to be said in thinking about this unknown man 
who declares he's nobody special. Uh, But in the hands of the living God, he reveals God-inspired truth to us that we need. So here we go, okay? And uh, what's interesting is, uh, just by way of review, um, he he starts off in verses 7 to 9 with these two last requests uh, for deception to be removed from him and that God would supply his needs, which we talked about last time, um, not wanting so little, or not having so little that we're tempted to, to theft, and not having too much that we're tempted to forget and deny God, uh, as he says there in verses 7 to 9. And then, kind of getting into the section where we left off last time, um, he talks about the connection between our pride and our speech. And this is not in your notes, of course, but this is just review from last time. Uh, verse 10, do not slander a slave to his master, he will curse you. Uh, verse 11, there's a kind of man who curses his father and does not bless his mother. By the way, we were just, um, our family was just, we're, we're studying Exodus right now, and, and we were just looking at uh, some of the laws um, in chapters 21, 22 in that area. And um, we were shocked the other night to know that if you cursed your father, you were liable to the death penalty in the nation of Israel. There you go. Wow, right? Uh, you, you almost say, well, who then can be parents, right? You know, it's kind of, what, what do we do with that? And, of course, we're not advocating that. And in God's kindness, that was a, a penalty that was not enforced uh, with any sort of regularity. But it, it, does, it does impress upon us something of the seriousness of how God views the breaking of his law. And uh, especially as it really, those of us that are parents or grandparents, uh, the sort of honoring of authority that needs to be a habit of our young people today that's lost, right? The, the seasoned saints in our room would nod their heads and say, yeah, those kids need to really learn what it means to honor and respect authority. Um, so we, we see that here, and Mr. Agur uh, helps us to see the, uh, the wisdom of that um, and the foolishness of, of cursing your own parents. Verse 13, uh, verse 12, there's a kind who is pure in his own eyes, there is, yet he is not washed from his filthiness. There is a kind, oh, how lofty are his eyes, and his eyelids are raised in arrogance. Um, what is the problem? T- talk to me here for a minute. What is the challenge of trying to help an arrogant person? They already know it. Yeah, they already know everything. Yeah, and getting them to see the problem. Yeah, you guys, you guys hit the, the, the twin problems of this thing. One is they think they already know anything, so they don't need help. And what is most obvious, the most obvious problem to everybody else around them, they don't see. And, and, and that's why he says, you know, there's a kind of man who's pure in his own eyes, yet he's not washed from his filthiness, right? He thinks he's fine and he's not. There is a kind, oh, how lofty are his eyes, his eyelids are raised in arrogance, and, and, uh, the, the challenge of trying to minister to somebody like that. And, and um, one of the things that happens when you're puffed up with arrogance and pride is it comes out in how you speak to other people. Have you noticed that? Um, arrogance is probably seen most clearly in how a person talks to other people or talks about other people. Verse 14 makes that connection. There's a kind of man whose teeth are like swords and his jaw teeth like knives to devour the afflicted from the earth and the needy from among men. So 
He wants to uh, help, help us to see that connection between those two. Okay, so here's where we left off last time. We're calling these the inspired observations of Agur, our, uh, our tour guide here. And uh, you'll notice on your notes there, we have this two, three, four, five um, numbers there. And um, it's interesting that, uh, man, where do we start here? Part of what God uses in inspiring what we call the poetic books of the Bible. So the poetic books of the Bible are what? What are are the poetry books? Let's just remind ourselves here. Well, they start with the book of Job. They're in order. That helps. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Okay. And, and actually, those of you may know this, the prophetic books, so Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, so those have a poetic style to them not as overt as as the books we just mentioned but um but nonetheless those are considered the books of wisdom and the poetic books and uh, i don't know what you think about poetry i could tell you what i think about poetry but that's not why we're here um what's difficult and challenging in some of these is to recognize there's a completely different style that's used that's why we call it poetry you don't you don't get up and read the newspaper and read poetry right that's a news story genre but poetry is different. And one of the things that people do in writing poetry, one of the things that makes poetry poetry is there are these, these things that the author does that are a unique part of the literature. You know, for example, we've seen, what's the most common feature in Proverbs in terms of poetry? What do we, what do we see over and over and over the, 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 uh, the facet or, or the part of poetry that has sort of characterized the book of Proverbs? Contrast. Yeah, contrastive parallelism is the technical term, right? Parallelism is saying the same thing two different ways, right? Um, uh, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man, right? What is he saying? He says two things the same way. They're the same thing, but he said two different ways. Contrastive parallelism would be uh, a gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. It's contrasting two ways of speaking. And that's what we've seen most often in the book of Proverbs. Well, well, here, this is kind of interesting. Because Egger was a numbers guy. And he enjoyed the structure of writing in a way that brings attention to certain numerical sequences. So, so check this out. Let's just read the section here. Look at verse 15. The leech has two daughters. Give and give. There are three things that will not be satisfied, four that will not say enough. Sheol and the barren woman, earth that is never satisfied with water, and fire that never says enough. Verse 18, there are three things which are too wonderful for me. Verse 21, under three things the earth quakes, and under four it cannot bear up. Down to verse 24, four things are small on the earth. Verse 29, there are three things which are stately in their march, even four which are stately when they walk. Do you see the numbers? There's two things, right? The, the leech has two daughters, and then he's like three and four, and three and four, and three and four, and three and four. And by the way, he repeats that five times. So that's why we entitled the section two, three, four, five. You say, what does that have to do? I have no idea. I have no idea what that's for, other than what do we do? What did it just do to you? You remember it, and it makes it interesting, doesn't it? It kind of makes it interesting. You go, well, why is he doing that? Maybe he's only doing it so that we'll pay a little more attention. Okay? And, and maybe there's some secret meaning here that I haven't been able to figure out, but it's mostly just designed to give some structure 
and to draw us in here. Now, we looked at a few of these last time. We're, we're calling the, the, the riddle me this Batman section here because it's a series of observations that are designed to be riddles. And uh, so let's look at some of these, okay? We, we learned that don't be a leech. That's kind of the first takeaway. A taunt about being a parasite. The leech has two daughters. Now, the, the leech creature, if you've ever seen a, an actual leech, it's got two suckers on the end of it that, you know, that lock into its host. And uh, so when it says the leech has two daughters, it's talking about those two suckers. And, uh, and basically what Agur is saying is uh, we, we need to be careful about uh, leeching, so to speak, being a parasite in regard to other people. Okay. Now, now we get to this three and four section, verses 15 and, uh, excuse me, where are we here? Yeah, the end of 15 and 16. There are three things which will not be satisfied, four that will not say enough. Sheol and the barren woman, earth that is never satisfied with water, and fire that never says enough. Okay? And the riddle here is about never being satisfied. Um, there are things that, um, these, these illustrate the fact that um, some things are not satisfied, and uh, so those four things demonstrate that reality. Uh, and then I think this is where we actually stopped last time. Exceedingly unusual things, verse 18, there are three things which are too wonderful for me, four which I do not understand, the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. This is the way, here's the connection, this is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Now, looking at the, the, the three things, and then he forgets there's a fourth one. The fourth thing that are too wonderful, or that word wonderful can mean um, uh, different or even difficult or inappropriate. Uh, and I think Jim pointed this out last time. What, what, what's the commonality of those four things? Do you remember the, the eagle and the... What's, yeah, they don't leave any tracks, right? Have you noticed that? Eagle flying across the sky does not leave a contrail like a 737 does. Um, the... Serpent on the rock, as he, say, slithers around or whatever they, whatever serpents do, uh, they don't leave a, a trail, uh, the way like a snail might leave a little trail behind him, but a, a serpent or a snake does not do that. In the way of a ship in the middle of the sea, sure, there's a little bit of a wake, but it dissolves uh, quickly. Um, and and the the implication here, as we looked at last time, is the connection with verse 20, the adulterous woman, and. So we see the way of a man with a maid is, is really saying when you get involved physically, sexually with somebody that you're not married to, the, the, the thought is there's no consequence to this, right? You don't leave any trail behind you, as it were. Um, there's no recourse. There's no consequence. There's no big deal. And man, if, if there's a generation that needs to hear the wisdom of this principle, it is today's generation where uh, the beautiful gift of intimacy that God designed in the context of a married man and woman in the covenant of marriage is abused and slandered and adulterated and perverted to where it is, it is um, that form of sin is seen as just no big deal. It's just no big deal. It's just what everybody does. And uh, so Mr. Agur is helping us to see how inappropriate that is, how difficult that is uh, in, in the context of what God has designed for us. Okay, so let's pick it up. Okay, riddle, riddle me this, Batman. Look at verse 
21. Under three things the earth quakes, and under four it cannot bear up. Under a slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he is satisfied with food. Under an unloved woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she supplants her mistress. What is going on with that? Now, you had an extra hour of sleep, so I'm, I'm, guess, I'm guessing you're, you're really on the ball today figuring out the riddles here. So jump in, tell me what you see. Yeah, yeah. Okay. It, Okay, all right. But you've got me looking real hard, and I'm probably seeing things that aren't there. Yeah, and that's, that's the challenge of, of riddles in the Bible, especially when there's no divine commentary. And I just want to be very clear. We're sort of making a sanctified educational guess on what these things mean, and obviously we don't know, like, for sure. But it's a riddle. What a slave becomes king. Let's think about that. When a slave becomes king. Yeah. Yeah, it's not typical, is it? It's kind of out of place. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad, but it's at least out of place, right? It, it's, it's unusual. Okay. Brian? Okay, it could be. Yeah, a rebellion. So that would really be out of place then, right? It's really out of the norm. Um, a fool when he's satisfied with food. Now, now you know this because we've spent the whole last 29 chapters talking about what a fool does in all sorts of realms of life. So what does a fool do when he's satisfied? Yeah, he forgets God. He sleeps too much probably. Overindulged, that's right. Okay, yeah, then that's what we see with the fool when it comes to food is most of the time the fool's looking for food because he hasn't worked, he slept too much, and so now he's begging. But when he gets an overabundance of food, what does he do? He sleeps more. He wastes the opportunity, doesn't he? Okay, so now we're starting to see a little bit of a pattern here. You got a slave who becomes king. Well, that's kind of out of place. You've got a fool who ordinarily wouldn't be have the opportunity to have satisfaction with food, but here he is, and we go, man, that that shouldn't be, right? Because he doesn't work, and he's lazy, and he's a sluggard. and Okay, now, now we're getting somewhere. Under an unloved woman when she gets a husband. That's Man, that's hard. Because we, we might say, like, um, with, um, like with Leah. Remember Leah back in the Old Testament? And her younger... Uh, apparently more attractive sister was the intended wife and her dad tricks the son-in-law. You know, you know the story, right? So we can think of it like, well, that's a great thing, right? That's a great thing. Or we could say, you know, we have to ask the question, why is she unloved? Is she unloved because everybody's overlooked her and finally some guy shows up and, and puts his love and affection on her, and we think, man, that, that's a storybook. It's a Disney movie, right? It could be a Disney movie. 
Or maybe there's a reason she's not loved. Maybe this is not a good girl. Maybe this is a very selfish, unwise, reckless, abusive speech kind of girl. And now she gets a husband. And you go, oh my goodness. You know anybody like that? I don't know. So you kind of can go either way. But, but sticking with the theme, we can read that in a way that says, oh no. Oh no. <laughs> it's going to be a disaster of a marriage, isn't it? And a maidservant, when she supplants her mistress, well, obviously that, that's another horrible illustration of the way things ought not to be. So my best take on this, guys, is that these things are either out of order or unbearable or uh, inappropriate in some way, as we've seen. Um, so so what, do we, what do we think here? You have an unqualified person in leadership. You have a fool with abundance. You have a hated woman when she gets married and probably has a sinful reaction and a servant displaces her mistress. Where have we seen a servant displace her mistress before in the Bible? Hagar and Sarah, right? Okay. So probably what we're thinking about here, guys, is uh, something that is overwhelming. You know, a slave is in leadership and he just isn't qualified to do that. He's just going to crumble under that. Or maybe something that's just out of order, out of sorts, out of place. Not a good thing. Now, now what, what's Egger trying to teach us here? I think he's trying to teach us with, with the book of Proverbs that, that there is an appropriate person to be in leadership, isn't there? And there's, a, there's an appropriate person. There is an appropriate person who can handle abundance. And there's a lot of people who can't. There, there's a right way to think about relationships in marriage and in other contexts. And there's a thousand ways you can pervert those relationships. And Agur is just trying to help us to see, you know, sometimes you end up in this scenario, here's the point, that is against God's design. And that's not a good thing. Okay. Check this out. Here's my cute little furry friend here. Lee, can you hit the front lights there for me so we can see our little cute friend here? You know what that is? Yeah, yeah, neither did I until I looked it up. Um, that is, look at, the, look at the next verse here. Verse 24. Four things are small on the earth. But they are exceedingly wise. The ants are not a strong people. Now, that's not an ant. Uh, but they prepare their food in summer. The shephanim. Shephanim. You say, what's a shephanim? That's lots of shephins. The I-M just makes it plural, right? On the end there. So, uh, what does your Bible say? Do you, did you have a different version? Okay, Coney, Rockbatcher, what did you say? Kyrax, okay, that's the technical uh, term for it. Uh, it's, a, it's this little cute little rodent thing that looks kind of like a groundhog or a gopher or a, a squirrel that, you know, ate too much, you know, mutant ninja turtle sauce or something. But yes, that's correct. Yeah, so these are native to the Palestinian era, and uh, so here you go. You, you meet my furry new friend here, and now you know what a shefanim is. Okay. Um, the, the reason the NASB did that is because um, 
there's some uncertainty about what we're talking about here, but but we are talking about some sort of uh, uh, little furry crawly creature that makes its houses in the rock here, and as Rich indicated, uh, very common in that part of the world. Okay, so what do we learn about these four things that are small on the earth, but they are exceedingly wise? Here's some examples. The ants are not a strong people, but they prepare their food in summer. The Shephanim or the rock badger are not a mighty people, yet they make their houses in the rocks. The locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. The lizards you may grasp with the hands, and yet they are in king's palaces. Okay, so these are small creatures that exemplify what? Small size, small stature, okay, so they're not impressive, right? They're, they're kind of little and overlooked. But what do they exemplify in those four examples? They're exceedingly... Well, let's just look at the text again. Verse 24, yet they are exceedingly wise. See, we get a little bit of inspired commentary. We don't have to guess so much on this one. They're wise. So we'll call this one, riddle me this, Batman, size matters not in wisdom. Now, trouble understanding Yoda you have, right? Um, Size matters not in wisdom. The riddle is, do not look at the outward appearance, right? Do not look at the outward appearance. Don't don't be impressed or underimpressed based on the stature or the size. We have a shepherd boy named David, you know, the junior hire of the family of mighty warriors that God picks to be king in in 1 Samuel chapter 16 because man looks at the outward behavior, but God looks on the heart. We have ants that bite us in the summertime when we step on their mounds and piles, Texas fire ants, or as we say out here, Texas fur ants, right? You got to say it like that. Um but what do they do? According to this verse, what do they do? They uh, are not a strong people. Okay, we just killed 28 of them. I hope there was nobody down below when I did that. But they do what? They prepare their food in summer. Why do you think they come out in droves in the spring and summertime? You think, oh, they're gone. I finally got them out of my lawn. Oh, no, no, no. They, yeah, they have prepared for winter, Right? And, and here they come, be ready in the spring, and they will come back with lots and lots and lots of family and friends. So they're small. If you ever, I mean, and I know that we talked about this before in the book of Proverbs, because the Proverbs loves to talk about ants. Um, have you ever seen an ant carrying like six times his body weight across your counter? It's, it's amazing. So we can learn from that. The Shephanim, the, the rock badgers, are not a mighty people, uh, yet they make their house in rocks. So, so you're thinking, you know, how does this cute little thing get way, way up on this cliff? And that's where he moves in and makes his house. And you're going, don't fall, little critter, don't fall. But they're little, they're, un, they're unimpressive, and yet they can they can climb and they can make these uh, facilities and... Um, defy gravity and if you you want to have some fun google this and find some videos i guess i should have included a video here and just to see some of the death defying acts of the shephanim um they could make a good circus act i suppose 
The locusts have no king, yet all of them go out in ranks. What does that mean? Yeah, they come out in four. Yeah, you don't, you do not want to meet a locust, right? It's like a fighter jet, right, Roger? There's never just one of them. There's always, you know, is that true? Seems like they're they're always more than one, right? I I don't know, at least around here. Yeah, locust, yes, yeah, that's right. Um, No? Okay. All right. Well, anyway, so you gotta look for, you know, all their friends that come along with them, right? Um, so here they come, and they have no king, right? There's no squadron commander, there's no, uh, there's no organizational chief, as we would like to think of them, and yet they go and they accomplish uh, horrible acts of locust violence um, working together in their ranks. Uh, what about the last one? The lizard you may grasp with the hands. What does that mean? You ever, you ever brought a lizard in to show your mom, Noah? Yeah, you ever done that, Tucker? No. Are you a hands-off bugs kind of guy? You hands-off? Okay. You done that out on the farm? Okay. All right, you do that? Yeah, did you do that when you were a kid? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's a small percentage of kids who are like, ew, I would never touch that. Most kids go, oh, yeah, look, Mom, nah, right? And so the idea, here's this little creature that your five-year-old brings into the house and says, hey, look, Mom, just a little thing that your kid picks up. And yet, the texts also tell us they dwell in king's palaces. These little things that make their resident in the palace of the king. So size matters not when it comes to wisdom, right? Right, right. And, and maybe that's the point. Because remember, he starts off saying, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I guess we could say he's not the smartest knife in the drawer. No. Um, but uh, so, um, but yeah, these, these little creatures humble us in terms of their abilities and their wisdom. Okay? One more. One more. There are three things which are stately in their march, even four which are stately when they walk. The lion, which is mighty amongst the beasts and does not retreat before any. The strutting rooster, the male goat also, and the king when his army is with him. So what's the riddle? These are creatures, and in some cases the king, who are grand in their stride, we could say. Um, These are metaphors of leadership, metaphors of dignity. Uh, We've got um, the lion, mighty amongst beasts, does not retreat before any. The strutting rooster, the male goat, in terms of their their rituals of leadership that uh, uh, attract uh, the females and um, exemplify their uh, leadership in that, and the king when his army is with him. And again, it's just it, it's a it's a metaphor of how a person in leadership or a person in a position of authority ought to handle himself or herself, uh, being a dignified uh, and exemplary uh, person in those uh, in those situations, royalty and whatnot. Okay, so there we go. Now, that leaves us with the last two verses here. If you have been foolish in exalting yourself... Or if you have plotted evil. Now, we might say, where did that come from? 
Where does that come from? So we've, we've, been, we've been to the zoo, really, right? We've just been to the zoo and back, and we're looking at these creatures, and, and we're, we're trying to figure out the riddles. And he comes and he says, um, okay, here's how we conclude this. If you have been in foolish in exalting yourself, why? Why would this study, this chapter, uh, Mr. Agur's words to us, why would they have brought about some level of conviction regarding foolishness or pride? Okay. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 Here, I, this is, I think, the connection, and I think, I think Alice is, is onto it. Um, you know, he starts off saying, "I'm not an impressive guy. In fact, I'm the stupidest guy I know, but I'm going to talk to you anyway." And then he talks about what. Verse 4, who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped the waters in his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding, right? Before the eyes of the Lord, we are all just stupid people. We are all just ignorant and foolish. But there is one who gives wisdom. There is one whose name is wisdom. And he is condescended through his son so that we might know him and have a relationship with him. And in light of that, how ought we to live, right? And he's, he showed us every word of God. Verse 5, every word of God is tested. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. That's how you know wisdom. You know wisdom when you recognize your own foolishness and your own ignorance in light of the God of the universe who made everything out of his amazing, wise, knowledgeable understanding. And how we, we can know something of that wisdom, not directly, but as God reveals it to us in his word. Therefore, verse 6, we should not add to his words, lest he reprove us and we be proved a liar. And then he goes into this section talking about ways that we can manifest um, foolishness. We can manifest our pride and ignorance. And he talks about not slandering, being puffed up in pride. We looked at that, you know, cursing your mom and dad, uh, having issues in your life, but thinking that you're pure when you're actually not washed from your filthiness. Verse 12, uh, looking at yourself as lofty and dignified. Verse 13, even though you're not looking down on others and being hurtful in your words out of your pride. Verses 14 and following. And then he gives us these riddles. Uh, some of which are hard to understand, but have you seen at least a couple of these are very, very clear in that they're communicating, we are just not as smart as we think we are. Which is why size matters not. It's why an ant can bring conviction to your life. Right. That's right. Yeah, that's good. That's true. Mm -hmm. So all that to say, as we have as we have have learned and been convicted by God's created world, even like, you know, rock badgers and ants, as we've been convicted hearing direct 
rebuke of people who are too wise in their own eyes as we have thought about our abilities and our knowledge and our wisdom in light of the one who has descended from heaven, who gathers the wind in his fists, who wraps the waters in his garment, who established the ends of the earth. As, as we think of ourselves in light of who God really is, what should happen is we should be convicted about some of the ways that we're walking in pride instead of in a humble dependence on the Lord. And so he concludes, if you have been foolish, notice he's not afraid to use the second person, right? It's not like if we've been convicted, if we've kind of been prideful, he's like, you man, you, if you've been convicted of being foolish because you've exalted yourself, if you have plotted evil. Remember that? The slant, remember the slanderous one? The guy who curses his mom and dad, who slanders a slave to his master? Remember that? If, if you've been found guilty of plotting evil, that's no big deal. Everybody does it. Right? Is that what he says? Yeah, J- Jim is illustrating it. You, yeah, you can, <laughs> I love your translation because that's right on. Keep your mouth shut, man. You put your hand over your mouth. In repentance. You say, how do we know that's repentance? Because that is one of the ways that Hebrew people illustrated physically their repentance. You know, repent, how do you know if somebody repents? Repentance is a heart thing, right? Where you turn from your sin to God, you recognize you're going the wrong direction, you turn to God for help to go the right direction. That's repentance, right? Repentance is a spiritual 180 degree turn away from your sin and toward God who can help you in confession and mercy. Well, how do you know when that happens? Well, you can, you can look at the effect of that, but in the Hebrews, they had physical ways. If they were convicted and repentant, they would actually do things that illustrate, and we don't do this anymore, but it's a unique facet of their culture. What are some of the things the Hebrews would do when they were repentant? Yeah, you take off your comfortable clothes and you put on a potato sack. That's itchy and and annoying, and you're right. Why would why would you do that? You're illustrating your grief. You're, you're exemplifying your contrition. What else would they do? Fast. They would fast. They they would say, "I'm not going to eat for a little while." What else would they do? Usually, we call it sackcloth and ashes. What what are the ashes part of it? Okay, that's right. Yeah, they, they would literally go to the fire pit and they would take a scoop of ash and they would wet the brow or in some case, they got more sophisticated where they'd, they'd actually develop a, uh, apparatuses for holding the ashes. So that, that's down the road, the Pharisees. But but they would they would wet the brow and they would actually put ash on their forehead. Dirt. You know, last night's barbecue, you know, the remains of the wood and, and they would walk around uncomfortable fasting with ashes so that everybody knew that they had been convicted or they were repentant. And in some cases, grief was expressed in the same way, as you know. Wasn't that right, What's that? 
Well, that's a, that's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. So like what the Pharisees were, they would do that to draw attention to themselves. You're absolutely right. And of course, that, that would be a wrong illustration. But if, it, if it's done genuinely, as at least the way it started off in the culture, you know what? It, 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 it's not a bad thing if, if your goal is just to be contrite. But, you know, the, the quintessential example of this is Job, right? You remember this? I'll read it to you. So I, I don't want to do it from memory and get it wrong. In Job chapter 38 and 39, where God shows up, and for two chapters, he rebukes Job, and then Job chapter 40, verse 1, God concludes the first round of his interrogation. Then the Lord said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? That's the bottom line. That's what Job was doing. He was contending with God. Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord. Now listen to his repentant answer here, okay? This is Job chapter 40, verse 3, if you want a reference. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? Here it is. I lay my hand on my mouth. How do you know when you're really repentant? When you stop talking. When you stop making excuses. When you stop blaming other people. Once I have spoken and I will answer, I will not answer even twice, I will add nothing more. Back to chapter 30 of Proverbs. You don't have to have the last word. Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, probably trying to get in the last word means you're not quite repentant yet. Yeah, that's a good point. Back to, to Proverbs chapter 30. If you have been foolish in exalting yourself, or if you have plotted evil, put your hand on your mouth. It's so simple, guys, but we need to remember this. If you're guilty of pride or evil, stop. Repent. Um, Listen very closely. The wise person is not the person who never makes a mistake or never sins. A wise person is not the person who always gets it right. A wise person, listen, a wise person is the person when they are convicted of wickedness or evil, they repent. That's the point. God Through godly sorrow, that's right. Absolutely right. So, Mr. Agur wants us to see that actually a mark of wisdom, a mark of the godly man, is repentance when you're convicted. Notice this. Do you have an anger problem? Look for pride. That's the connection he wants us to make. Look at this. For the churning of milk produces butter, and the pressing of the nose brings forth blood, so the churning of anger produces strife. He's been talking about pride and foolishness, right? Now he's talking about anger. Why would he bring up anger in the context of talking about pride and foolishness? Because 
Anger is usually the indication, the fruit of a tree that's growing pride and self-exaltation, right? Anger is the expression of our pride so often because a, a prideful person is a person that is demanding of his way or her way. And anger is the result when a prideful person doesn't achieve his or her way, with the reference there to James chapter 4, uh, verse 6. Yes? We do. Yep, build our defense, build our team. That's right. That's right. So if you're guilty of pride or evil, stop, repent. Notice the connection he makes between living in pride and anger. Now, by the way, that's implicit. Uh, He's not explicit about that, but I'll leave that there for your consideration. Here's his last point. Living continually, living in continual anger leads to strife with others. You know that, right? You cannot have an isolated anger problem. If you have an anger problem, it will hurt other people around you. It creates strife. That's why Paul connects uh, repenting of anger. Do not let the sun go down in your anger with interpersonal conflict in Ephesians chapter 4. So living in continual anger leads to strife with others. Interesting. Look, look back at the text. As the pressing of the nose brings forth blood, so the churning of anger produces strife. You say, oh man, ugh. If you push in a person's nose with enough force, you will make them bleed. Ah, it's like, well, thank you, Mr. Agora. That's a nice mental picture, right? It's true, but it's very graphic. So the churning of anger produces strife. The graphic nature of this book is part of what draws us in. It's why it's a book for young people, right? The images that it expresses, the the um, stories, the over-the-top analogies are designed to help our young people to see this. So, so young person, remember this. Um, your anger affects other people. Your anger hurts those around you. It's true for old people too. But you say, why the picture? Why does he do this? This is really interesting. The Hebrew word for nose and the Hebrew word for anger have the same root. Did you know that? You learned that yet in your vocab? No? Okay. All right. All right. Um, Which is why the expression God is slow to anger in Hebrew. We read that before, right? Exodus chapter 34, Psalm 103. God is slow to anger. That's one of his attributes. If you were to look that up in Hebrew, it literally says God has a long nose. Because the words are, are, are from the same root, the word nose and the word anger. Now, why does God have a long nose? Because he's patient. He's slow to anger. It takes a long time for anger to affect him. It means he's patient. A long nose meaning, um, you know, when, you, when, when Nick gets angry or when Keith gets angry or Tucker gets angry, when any of us gets angry, you, you can see it on your face, can't you, right? Because the nose kind of flares, the brow kind of comes down. You might have some veins popping out down here in your brow. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't want you to t- take a selfie next time you're angry and see what it looks like for you. You can do that if you want to. But the point is anger shows up on your face. And by saying God has a long nose, what the Hebrews were saying was it takes a long time for anger to affect God. 
He's patient. He's slow to anger. But the, but the similarity, that, that's why he picks the pressing of the nose brings forth blood because there, there's some wordplay going on between the word nose and the word for anger. The more you press on a person's nose, the more you make them bleed and the more you live in anger, the more you will hurt other people around you. Okay. Wow. I don't even know what to do with it. I don't even know how to conclude that, except let's heed the words of our God-inspired friend here about pride, about who alone is wise, about where wisdom comes from, that his son, remember the gospel according to Agur, uh, that his son is the revealer of these things, the person and work of Jesus. And let's take these observations and learn from them. I think the takeaway is this, so that we will walk in humble dependence on the Lord and not in sinful pride. And the wise person repents. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for this very interesting chapter that has been challenging and yet such great nuggets of biblical truth. Lord, I pray that as your people, we would walk in humility. We would walk in a dependence on Jesus and we would walk on, live in a a way of depending on you as the giver of every good thing, including everything that we are capable of doing or knowing or achieving. And Father, I pray when we are convicted that we would be quick to repent and that uh, that habit of quick repentance would lead to our flourishing and to our growth. Lord, thank you for this unknown man who you used uh, to illustrate such profound biblical truth to us. We're thankful, Lord, that you you alone possess wisdom and you dispense it uh, in your way to us. Thank you, Lord, that you've revealed that wisdom to us through your word and through the person of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.